0: Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today is an exciting day as it's a Mariner's Mirror video launch day. We've just released a fabulous little video to go alongside this podcast. It's an animation of the great five-masted German sailing ship Preussen, which explores her quite remarkable rigging and also looks into her fate. How this most mighty of all sailing warships that crossed the widest and deepest of the world's oceans ended up on the bottom of the sea in a shallow bay in the English Channel. The Prussian really was a marvel of a ship, a steel-holed, five-masted, ship-rigged, sailing ship built in 1902, named after the German Kingdom of Prussia. In fact, until the launch of Royal Clipper, a sail cruise liner in 2000, Prussian was the only five-masted, full-rigged ship ever built, and she carried six square sails on every one of her five masts. Not only did she have a fascinating career at a time when the sun was setting on the great clipper ships, she also had a fascinating and abrupt end in 1910. To find out more, I spoke with Frank Scott. Now, Frank knows a thing or two about the great age of sail. He is a retired naval aviator and qualified square rig shipmaster who commanded various square riggers ranging from 80 to 800 gross tonnes. In his long sail training career, Frank served in 14 square riggers under seven different national flags. He's a fellow of the Nautical Institute and author of A Square Rig Handbook, along with several articles and notes for the Society for Nautical Research's publication, The Mariner's Mirror. As ever, I hope you enjoy listening to him as much as I enjoy talking with him. So here is the excellent Frank. Frank, thank you very much for joining me this morning. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much, Sam. So, the Preußen, what a fascinating ship.
2: Why don't we just start off? Tell us about what type of ship she was. Well, Preußen was, in some ways, the, 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 the apogee of the last days of sail. She was the only five masted, full rigged ship. There were f- a lot of four masted vessels, barks, and full rigged ships, a few f- five masted barks, but the only five masted, full rigged ships was Preusson with the most sail area, and she's iconic, basically, mm. because of that. Why were there so
0: few other ships? I mean, if they, if they built a five-master and it worked, why were there not any more?
2: Well, it, what, when one says the five-master worked, there weren't very many because they, they were just a bit big. The four-master bark was really the, the workhorse, and that was the one that worked best. Four-master full-rig ship had more sail, but it didn't really give any advantages and the same way they went up to five masted the barks they could work the five master full rig ship really introduced a lot more complexity without giving much benefit in terms of speed and performance
0: yeah and, and weight i suppose with the extra extra weight of the mast would have slowed it down and the whole thing has to be exponentially bigger doesn't it i mean Prussian was an enormous vessel
2: but yeah i mean it, i mean there's some thought that the five master full rig ship is because of the kaiser Apparently, he visited the Potosi, which is the lights company's first f- five masted vessel, five masted bark. And he said to the uh, the owner of the company at that time, nah, when, when come the five mast full, full rigger? And so <laughs> <laughs> so the Kaiser, Kaiser Bill wanted uh, to have something that nobody else had. Ah,
0: that makes sense. He was quite keen on things like that, wasn't yes, he? Yes, he so, was. <laughs>
2: um, so
0: there's a Procyon's a, a a very large five-masted trading ship. Why were um, ships like that important? Ships that could trade under sail at this time? Because I mean, you could build engines at the you know the turn of the 20th century.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, well, there were some routes that that, that that sail worked for, and one of them. Was the one out to the west and back from the west coast of South America, because the canal, the Panama Canal, wasn't open yet. Steamships could go; they could they could sort of get round Cape Horn. That was that was a slog, or they could go through Straits of Magellan, which was a very unpleasant piece of navigation. Um, But the sailing ship was actually, in, in practical terms, could get there as quick, and certainly with the Lights Company, they they were operating a schedule and 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 they went out there and they could also they were quite cheap when they laid up whereas a steamship laid laid up loading and it was quite a slow process loading the niter and that sort of stuff um they weren't expensive they were they were cheaper to run it was it, it worked yeah
0: And there's the balance of the kind of the reliability of the wind and the unreliability of the wind. Can you just say a little bit about the wind systems that blew these ships from northern Europe all the way down to to South America?
2: Well, that's one of the other things. The Germans, (laughs) they they made a serious study of winds and they studied logbooks. And so this weather routing had come in or some ideas about weather routing had come in already. But the Germans took it to another level and they really said we can set about things and route our ships on the best routes, compare people's performances and route them for reliability. And they did. And they worked a, a very good schedule out there. And the route out to South America took you around Cape Horn against the wind. That was a slog. Right. The route back was w- was with the wind. And that was much easier getting around Cape Horn. The big problem of getting around Cape Horn either way, well, particularly against the wind, was knowing when to, t- when to turn because they, their navigational system wasn't that great. Remember that uh, there were no GPS in those days. And often when going around Cape Horn, the weather was so bad, they couldn't take sun sites or, or star sites, which were be even better. And so they were relying a lot on dead reckoning. And they had to sort of make an extra sort of bit. To, so with modern navigational systems, they'd have got round quicker.
0: Ah, so what you mean? Um, they don't know when to turn north once yeah. they've yeah. kind of trans. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. and and vessel did get it wrong and suddenly have to panic and throw in another tack. You know, so yeah. it, 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 it. But th- again, the, the German company—they were fitting radios to their ships so they could get time signals, which improved their accuracy. Um, British ships, <laughs> the good old British—we didn't have time signals because we knew better. <laughs>
0: <laughs> i think it's fascinating that there's this um you know people who've heard of the trade winds and the sort of the reliable wind systems but the germans turning it into a science and knowing that even within the trade winds there are better routes to take
2: exactly yes but yeah you know, which you know do you just draw a straight line between uh europe and uh, and the cape horn or do you roots sort of where do you cross the equator, which is the best way to, route to get through the doldrums and that sort of stuff. And they, they made a pretty good science of that.
0: Hmm. Let's talk about the doldrums. Tell us about those.
2: Well, the doldrums is, is an area sort of broadly around the equator where the wind is unreliable. And actually, it, in performance terms, to make a good passage, you had to get through the doldrums reasonably quickly. If you made a bad passage, if you just got stuck in the doldrums and were lazy Uh, your passage fell off so the ability of vessel to ghost along and and there again the bigger the vessel you've got higher masts and there's usually a little a little bit of wind higher up which you can just ghost along and that the ability to ghost along made a big difference wow that's interesting so
0: um let's just carry on talking about the rig each of these five masts how many sails did each
2: mast have well you you have so starting at the bottom the 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 preusson she had a course or, uh, uh, on each mast, followed by two topsails, split topsails, split to gallants, and then a royal. So quite a variety of sails, and the strongest sail was the lower topsail. Broadly, they never took in the lower topsail. That was made out of extra strong double zero canvas, and even in, in, in the strongest storm, they'd be carrying that. So they would punch through. That was a great thing of the steel sailing ship compared to the wooden one. They could carry on and punch through weather that a wooden vessel would have to reduce because the vessel would break up.
0: That's interesting. What, so is the strength of the hull rather than the strength of the masts and everything what, else? Or was what, it all, sort of all, all together?
2: Well, a combination. Once the hull was stronger, you could you could tension up the rigging stronger. You could make everything stronger. The whole vessel had the ability to punch through. Um, yeah. A bit like, so, uh, what's the... Uh, so analogy really driving cross country in in a Land Rover Defender compared to um, uh, shall we say vw beetle you
0: know (laughs) i know which one i'd prefer to be in definitely so sort of more more robust and strong let's talk about those split topsails as well because they're interesting i mean uh, for our listeners if you imagine hms victory then the 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 topsail of hms victory is one enormous sail it has numerous reef points on it so it could be made smaller but in this period, early 20th century, you have split topsails. So you've literally got two sails on two different yards. Um, when did that come about and why was that important? It
2: came around broadly in the sort of 1850s onwards. They started looking at um, making things easier to handle. They'd worked out that there was a sort of size of sail um, above which uh, it was really difficult to handle. And also they wanted to reduce the um, stress on the crew. And, uh, and be able to reduce crew size so cutting the topsail in half basically making two sails you've got two smaller sails to handle and it was actually much easier to take in a sail than to reef it so with split topsails upper and lower when uh nelson's day they would have treble reef topsails with lots of people aloft and take a long time um in a which was very tedious you have a school you take the sail in then when the school passed you had to Take the reef out, um, whereas with with the topsails you just took the sail in, and then when the score was passed, you set it again. And sometimes you literally just dropped the sail, le- left it in its gear, waited till the score passed, and then rehoisted. So it was, and that was also a key thing for how much ma- much you made a good passage. It was not just is knowing when to take in sail, but also being hard nosed enough to set it again as soon as possible. And that's, yeah. again, what the Germans and the, the real passage makers were good at.
0: I think we should actually just talk briefly about the Germans. I mean, it's got, I, I was surprised. It's not an area of maritime history I know very much about, the, the Germans being particularly good at maritime history. Did they have a long history of shipbuilding or of operating ships?
2: Well, it, I, I think, well, obviously they, they did in the, in, in the more coastal strain, but but I think a lot of it is to do with the um, the energy that came around with the the growth of Prussia and then then the, the unification of Germany and Germany became a real powerhouse and they they decided that that they were going to expand into all sorts of areas and one of the areas was in shipbuilding and ship operating and uh, th- the benchmark they had to measure themselves against was the British the British we had far and away the biggest merchant fleet in the world um and as, as an aside, one of the reasons that the British were so big was the American shipping industry had been to a large extent destroyed by the uh, Civil War. Mm. So uh, the British had taken up ships, and and and, and we, we were incredibly dominant. The Germans, uh, the French ride on broadly national cruise. A Brit very difficult to get yourself onto a German ship or mm. a French one, for that matter. Unless you were, certainly not in Germany or France, you had to board it. It was only if they were short elsewhere and they could take on somebody for a temporary process. British ships were polygot crews, everybody, um, lots of EU citizens, as you might say. <laughs> um, but And me, I think Joseph Conrad, I mean, he was a Pole and he became a captain in the British Merchant Navy. That would have been unthinkable with the Germans. Uh, yeah, and, and, and also they were reservists. So they part of the reason for that was they were then reservists for the Navy. Um, uh, Count von Luckner, the famous uh, raider, he started his career under sail and became, then came into the Navy of our reserves. So they mm. were, it, it was all part of a national plan, if you might say, whereas the British, it, was just, it just grew. We didn't really think about things too much. Yeah.
0: Let's talk about the size of the cruise. That's interesting. So you mentioned, you know... Um, sort Of in back in Nelson's time, sailors reefing uh, the, the topsail sort of victory or something, a, a huge number of people 50, 70 up aloft. I'm thinking, how oh, I mean, um,
2: uh, I mean, yes, I mean, and the choreography to control these huge crews. Uh, uh, and in fact, it's it, the difficulty really was to get enough people who could work aloft, you could get lots of people in the ship. Um, I mean, Nelson's day, but it was getting enough that could actually genuinely be useful aloft, yeah. Uh, and even when they were getting people off the beach you you read stories from some of the british ships and the americans who were buying crew off from the crimps in in san francisco they would sometimes find that quite a few of the people they got dumped on them drunk couldn't actually work aloft so that was that was a real problem uh in the merchant ships
0: yeah and but the time of Proyson, I mean, how, how Proyson is an unimaginably big ship compared to Nelson's time. Yeah. Um. But so, how many crew is on board, and and and
2: how did they manage to work such enormous sails? She crew sailed with a crew of forty-eight people, up to forty-eight, sometimes fifty, with a couple of boys on board. Um, whereas the much smaller Cutty Sark, uh, which we know, um, yeah. which was taking about less than a quarter of her tonnage of of cargo required 35 people hmm. uh, and also that the Cadiz and vessel like that they, they were those would all have to be prime seamen you could afford in in the Preußen to carry people who were who were training and so you had needed less able seamen. That's interesting and did they have um I mean, how did they operate such enorm- enormous enormous
0: masts and sails I'm just sort of thinking about how how it worked? Were there? I think whether it was all manual. Were there? Was there engines to help them as well?
2: Well, they had um, a lot of winches. So, so, rather, the lower three yards were all controlled by brace winches. So, you manual control, but there were winches. So, you wound a handle, and the yards went round. So, the heaviest yards went round with the winches, and basically, they brought the rest of the yards round with them. So, it was much easier to work. So, bracing was much easier they had a lot of winches on deck so the uh, tacks and sheets for the courses the biggest sails, they were all controlled by winches they also had halyard winches so when they'd hoist the yards rather than having to sweat away with 25 people clapped onto a tackle they just had one guy or perhaps two if they felt if they were smaller winding a handle and up went the up went the yard so they were much more efficient they also had steam, uh, the donkey engine, which could handle uh, the cargo and raising the anchor and that sort of stuff. So they were, it was an industrial ship. People think the sailing ship was a sort of Luddite piece, but actually the industrial revolution affected the sailing ship and and by the end that it was a piece of um, machinery and that's what it was.
3: Yeah,
0: highly engineered piece of machinery. Let's talk about the um, uh, about the cargo. What 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 was Preussner built to do, and what was she carrying across the Atlantic?
2: Well, well, broadly, when she was going out to South America, she was carrying general cargo to South America, which was her main route, uh, and she, all sorts of odds and ends, uh, which were ordered by pe- even grand pianos and things like that. That wasn't the money making. The money making, the real money maker, was the cargo back. Which was nitre for uh, saltpeter, which was basically used for explosives and fertilizer. So it was a very important cargo.
0: Yeah, I mean, everyone arming at the beginning of the 20th century, um, a key part of that, isn't it? I mean, I was surprised. Well, and I noticed and I, and I realized how much how important it was as a fertilizer to help 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 with farming, but it has this this secondary role of being
2: able to create gunpowder exactly and actually that was quite a good cargo because when you loaded it once it set in there it sets it sets solid low in the ship so you were the, the ships carrying uh uh peter were very stable um it, it saw peter didn't suffer from cargo ships so so as far as crews were concerned it was a good cargo to carry mm. uh, and uh but the trouble was where they were in south america was uh, what we would now call third world really and uh, and the process of loading was pretty slow and uh, it, it took time so it, yeah. it it was a slow process Th- that said lights they paid a premium so they so compared to the tramp cargo ships coming in uh, they got loaded quicker but still it was a pretty slow process barges came out and you were then bringing it in by winches onto the ship and loading it into the cargo bays and and pretty unpleasant. I mean, you everybody would be wearing homemade masks because the stuff got into the into your chest and everything else. It was an unpleasant cargo to load and discharge, but it was a once once loaded, it was a good cargo. Yeah, that's just really interesting.
0: The the ability to get there to actually pick your cargo up as well. I I'm, I'm fascinated by this. So it's it's a slog and there's having to sail into the wind to get round Cape yep. Horn. Yep. Can you just explain to people how a sailing ship might sail into the wind for those who don't know?
2: Well, if you, when you're sailing into the wind it's what's called tacking. So you you sail as close as you can to the to the wind, uh, which in a, a big square egg is about sixty five seventy 70 degrees the wind. Um and then you basically zigzag up towards your destination, uh, and it, which, which, which is quite a slope. And of course, every time you need to tack at the other end, very strong winds, you can just turn through the wind, um, in reasonable wind. When it gets very strong, you have to turn away from wind, do a big sort of 180 ready to come onto the new course, and that loses ground. So that can, it can be a very slow and inefficient way of going to wind. So the stronger the ship, uh, the finer the judgment of the captain, uh, the better c- the passage you made. Mm. And again, that 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 makes a big difference. If you had a good company, which lights was ran the price, and their ships were well maintained, the sails were good, the gear was in good condition, um, the crew were reasonably well fed. That you know, they were much more capable of of making a good passage. If you read the memoirs of some of the people who sailed in uh, the tramp sailing ships, which were run you know on a shoestring and and later in the post-war period in the Ericsson ships, which were you know, not a penny was spent that didn't have to be spent, you know it was they, they were they had much more of a struggle to cope with those sort of conditions. How dangerous was it? yeah it it, it it was dangerous, I mean because we even lights were lost ships um so yeah and people could be lost overboard you could and that's why i say the condition of the ship the better the condition of the ship the less, less likely you were to have accidents like people falling all off for gear, gear failing but uh a had a reasonably good reputation and the german sh- uh, the, the company had a good reputation so they were they and that made a difference as well you, they generally sailed with picked crew if you, to get in the price you had to be good you were selected um, and so that they, they weren't just dragging people off the jetty to make up the numbers uh which uh, some other ships were particularly in britain we were making do with uh poor quality people. Mm. Have you worked aloft Yes, i have, and i i i have I, I would say I was sort of the last generation when I trained in Solander in sixty eight where we had uh canvas sails, no safety harnesses, no synthetic ropes or sails you know so it, it it's different it, it, you know a canvas sail when it's well worked and dry is very pleasant to work with unfortunately um, conditions aren't like and when it gets wet it absorbs the water it becomes very so it's enormously heavy it's difficult to, to handle so uh, yeah uh, uh, handling with uh, traditional canvas and uh, natural fiber rope is, is a different ball game to modern ships with uh, much stronger synthetic sails and um, synthetic uh, ropes and uh, handling gear.
0: The cold is a bad problem, isn't it? I mean, I've done a, a fair amount of work a lot, even with uh, modern modern gear. But when your fingers get cold, that's when it becomes quite dangerous and and incredibly difficult.
2: Yes, I mean, I've I've never worked in sort of the Arctic, but I mean, I've I've, I've uh, operated down in that area and 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 yeah, incredibly miserable down uh it, in 50 south with uh wind coming in from and that's you know from nowhere suddenly yeah then. um yeah i, I so to say hats off i i hate to think what it must be like doing that yeah
0: and for those who don't know um, let's talk a bit about how you balance up on the yards how do you physically kind of hold your position whilst working on a sail
2: well it the whole business of work going aloft to work it, it's just like climbing it's it's you Always to try and maintain three points of contact when you're going up aloft and coming down. So you're only moving one oh. limb at a time. And when you're on the yard, you've got your feet on foot rope and that balances. And you, broadly speaking, your middle part is on the yard. And so, in fact, you could just take your hands off and just balance there. And, and it is a matter of getting yourself in the right position. Um, and, of course, that means... you. Know, you if your average height, which the ship is rigged for, you're, it's much easier. If you're very tall or very small, uh, working aloft would be more difficult for you because the ship would just rigged for the average person or the average person of that day. Yeah.
0: Yes, uh, and it's worth emphasising for those who, who uh, see it as a frightening occupation and very dangerous that the rig was designed for people to oh, climb aloft. loft. It's oh, yeah. a really kind of obvious point that it is designed to make it doable.
2: Oh, yeah, and they had... And that era, they'd introduced um, safety features aloft. So not only did you have a jack stay to which the sail was fastened, you had another jack stay on, on the soft, off top side of the of the yard, which you could hold on to. And so that enabled you to w- w- go along the yard and 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 um, also to stowing the sail was easier. Because you could you use that for, for, for doing that? So there were safety features aloft, compared to Nelson's day. So in, in some ways it was safer. Suddenly the gear was stronger. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but, but actually paradoxically working aloft is, is, is less dangerous than working on the bowsprit. The really dangerous place was out in the bowsprit. Why was that? Because uh, the pitching moment, the vessel is moving. And also you've got, as you know, when you're out in the bowsprit and the ships tramping along at high speed it feels exciting you've got a real adrenaline rush um so actually and that can overwhelm your sense of uh uh self-preservation <laughs> precaution yeah but, but the moments i mean if if the vessel takes a sudden pitch it can throw you right off and so you uh, you're thinking of a bigger vessel and you suddenly take a plunge one wave is slightly different to the other uh and yeah you it, it, It can be a big, and you can suddenly suddenly go green. You've got a great sea can come through and wash you off. So, the bowsprit, uh, certainly in the modern era, has proved to be much more dangerous than working loft. Far more accidents, uh, people coming off bowsprits than falling from aloft by
0: a big margin I suppose if you're unlucky enough to fall in, the ship's going to come and squash you as well.
2: Well, that, and the fact is, picking that, you know, by the time they sorted things out, you're way off. And again, pre GPS, the chances of them finding you were quite small. There's a famous story of one of the ships uh, running downwind in storm force condition, and Somebody go, goes over the side, and the captain just stands on the taffrail and salutes him. <laughs> wow! Because wow. basically, you, you're a dead man. You know, by the time we got round, it's water's bloody cold. Uh, well, very cold. <laughs> uh, we'll never get you, even in the best circumstances, and before you're dead. Gosh, that's, a, yeah. that's very sobering. Um, and, I mean, that's just, just a ship
0: in the middle of the ocean trying to fight its way uh, you know, to survival against the elements. But there's also the, the problem of other traffic and how manoeuvrable these ships are and rules of the road. So let's talk a little about how the poison came to an end.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, the other great hazard were steamships, particularly British steamships, because British had the most of the steamships, had a habit... Of uh, causing problems for sailing ships, and the particular thing is that a sailing ship's speed is, um, can vary because the wind strengths varies. So one minute they're not going too quickly, then a puff of wind comes up and they accelerate. And the prudent steamship, when coming across a sailing ship and wanting to pass it, would pass astern. Uh, the imprudent ones, or the ones who want to show off, they would try and pass ahead. And this is what happened to Proysen. She was coming westbound down the channel and across Channel Ferry, the Brighton was uh, crossing the channel and uh, the Brighton tried to pass ahead of the Preussen and um, basically, she uh, they collided. The Preussen lost her bowsprit and with that came down a fair amount of the uh, foremast and without the, the, her half of her foremast and the bowsprit or the jibs, she was uncontrollable uh and uh needed tugs and everything else uh, and that uh, for that reason she came to grief mm. uh, and, and i say by no means the only uh, sailing ship which uh, either had a collision and, and was damaged or actually sunk uh one of the uh, the joseph conrad which is now uh, preserved in uh, mystic seaport in america when she was the uh, George Starg one, um, she was run down on a clear night while she was at anchor by a British steamer in the Baltic, and sank, and, and uh, with loss of some young cadets. So uh, it, it it was uh, yeah, steamers were a big problem. And remember, there was this is no radar in that era. Uh, the vessels at night, particularly the vessels, only had uh, oil-fired navigational lamps, which had a sort of notional <laughs> visibility. Uh, so it could be difficult and. Uh, and, and people also wanted to get quite close to Saint. By the end of this era of sail, people often thought, well, go close to the ship to have a good view. And that possibly was what my hypothesis, that may be an issue with Brighton, that she wanted to go a bit closer to give all the passengers a good view of this magnificent 5 masted sailing ship. And in the, in the end, of course, it, that, that resulted in a collision.
0: That's interesting. I've seen lots of um, paintings of regattas and um, sort of, you know, with with everyone out on a summer's day in Portsmouth Harbour, wherever it might be, with so many tiny ships getting incredibly close to these enormous vessels. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah. Did they... When did kind of rules of the road come in to tell people how they were required to behave at sea?
2: Well, they came in... I mean, there were sort of... Somehow, some rules have become effectively uh, accepted. I mean, the idea that the vessel on the starboard tack was privileged, that's the vessel with the wind from the starboard side, was privileged compared to the one from the port side, and that if you were running free, you gave way to vessels that were close hauled That was sort of accepted, but not legally, but it was sort of accepted. And from the 1850s onwards, these rules became codified, initially, nationally, but then surprisingly quickly it became accepted internationally and um the collision regulations came out and it was also the era when steam was coming in so they introduced that the steamship was more had a bigger uh, ability to maneuver in any direction so that gave way to sailing ships uh under all circumstances and and gradually they increased requirements like what color lights you carried how you could distinguish one vessel from another so there was a and it's still going on. We're still trying to uh, codify rules. And uh, in more recent years, and so th- there was a, a big issue of how we cope with radar and that sort of stuff. So, uh, uh, it, it, collision regulations it, it, it is a whole history subject of its own.
0: Yeah, an ever-evolving process. Well, thank, listen, thank you very much indeed for talking us today, and I'm sure we're going to come back with more questions about the Great Age of Sail. It sounds like we can do a little series on seamanship. I think that would be very interesting yes, it, indeed.
2: It certainly would be, and and the sailor's life. I mean, poor Jack. Peter, as we we say, um, the sailor is still a, a, somebody on the margins.
0: Needs a bit more focus, a bit more spotlight. Well, thank, that brilliant. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you all so much for listening. Now, please make sure that this is not the last thing you do to interact with our fabulous podcast. In particular, I want to urge you all to check out the brilliant video content that we are also creating. You can find that at the Mariner's Mirror podcast YouTube page as well as on Instagram and TikTok. Our latest fantastical creations are, as mentioned, an animation of the Preusson. And coming soon, we also have an animation of one of my favourite craft in all of maritime history, the Cleopatra, a unique iron sort of floating coffin, I think is the way to describe it, that was used to transport back to London an ancient Egyptian obelisk to the banks of the Thames. Uh, This will be coming out shortly, but for now there is a stunning back catalogue of innovative videos for you to enjoy, my current favourite being the video that uses digital artistry and artificial intelligence to bring ships' figureheads back to life. That's some sentence to be able to say. Please remember that this pod comes from both the Society for Nautical Research and the Lloyds Register Foundation. So, do please check out what those great institutions are doing. The Society for Nautical Research at snr.org.uk, where you can join up, please, I would urge you all to do so. And you can find the History and Education Centre of the Lloyds Register Foundation at hec.lrfoundation.org.uk.